we're fundamentally headed towards planetary disaster unless we take drastic action. That really does have the effect of reorienting the way you think about your work, the way you think about the world, and the way you even think about your own life. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Karthik Ganapathy. He is partner in a democratic political communications firm, Left Flank Strategies. Karthik's politics were shaped by his time working for 350.org and Bernie 2016, among other organizations. I really enjoyed getting to know Karthik, talking politics, and hearing his story. If you're interested in entrepreneurship and progressive political communications, you should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Karthik of Left Flank Strategies. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Karthik, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? So I'm Karthik Ganapathy. I'm a communications consultant who works on political campaigns and progressive causes. I grew up in Southern California, went to college in New York, sort of fell into politics there, started working for a little known politician named Bill de Blasio well before he was the, the mayor. That was my first job in politics. And then from there, I at that point, my politics were pretty scattered, I would say. I was a Democrat, and that was, that was about it. I went to a campaign in Wisconsin. I went to a political consulting firm in New York. Then I sort of fell into this job working for 350.org, which is a pretty big change, working on climate advocacy. And I still believe that when you learn about climate change, when you start to work on climate change, it sort of has this effect of reorienting your worldview. And so for me, I think that that was the job and that was the experience that really sort of gave me the way that I see the world today, which is to say that I think things are profoundly in a bad place. We're losing the war in a pretty big way. And so I felt called to be to be part of the fight. And so I went to go work on Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016 and have worked on a bunch of different progressive causes and candidates since then, including Charles Booker's Senate campaign in Kentucky. We helped out with Karen Bass's election in LA. We worked for a bunch of progressive candidates and, and advocacy groups. Excited to talk to you about it all today. I'm happy to have the chance to talk to you too. You seem to suggest that you got political in college. Is that true? So my parents are immigrants from India. And so growing up, I didn't you know, I was taught basically that what you're supposed to do is succeed, like a lot of other immigrant kids. Like, it doesn't matter what you want to be in life. You just, as long as it's a doctor or a lawyer, as long as you're successful. I don't think I grew up with like a great innate sense of politics, but it was something that came to me before college. It was something that I sort of found myself gravitating towards. I had a loose sense that the Iraq war was wrong. I found myself listening to like, honestly, People that uh, like like Eminem lyrics were just bashing the Iraq War and stuff like that. Those were some of my earliest like political memories. I remember really not liking George W. Bush, and I think I was like 16 years old when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008. I was a junior in high school or something, and I had to have my mom drive me to go knock on doors in Nevada, which was the closest swing state. I grew up in LA, so I had my mom drive me out and like spend a whole weekend knocking on doors. I had like a sense of politics, but but it was different. Like my, my politics then were just kind of anti-Republican. And I think my politics now are, are a little different. When you knocked on doors for Obama then, do you think it made any difference? 
did I think it or or do I now think it made any difference? Tell me both. I, th- I think at the time I thought it made a difference. And I, I guess I still do in the sense that I think people feeling part of a collective project is good. And obviously field matters a lot. And especially in close races, as we just saw in Pennsylvania, as we saw it sort of all over the place. I think that's true. I do think there's an extent to which I've come around to the view that campaigns are largely influenced and, and sort of decided by forces that are much bigger than that. Like the vibes of voters in any given moment, the, paid media, the earned media, a lot of that stuff, I, I think ends up weighing in a lot more. So do I think I had some role in delivering Nevada for Obama? Maybe a tiny, tiny bit, but mostly probably not. Whatever you do in politics, it's a little hard to really take credit for stuff, I think, except if you're doing something really big. Tell me how you first connected with de Blasio. I'll just say, I, I think that's to- totally true about politics. I, I think there are there are rare situations in which like, you can see your own impact in a really visceral way. Maybe you made that macaca tape or something. And if it's, <laughs> do you remember that? The, I do. The, yeah, yeah, I do. You did some opposition research or collected something that, that really hurt a candidate or really helped a candidate. Yeah. 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 Or, or even, but even in smaller ways than that, like I remember this time on, on like Bernie's campaign in 2016, I was the New Hampshire press guy. Hillary Clinton had not taken a position on this proposal for a pipeline that like ran through the, the ran the length of New Hampshire. Um, and I was sort of pushing as like a way to differentiate us from, from the Clinton campaign, a way, you know, that, that Bernie should come out against this, the, the, this pipeline. Ultimately I sort of organized to have this speech insert put in. That was just kind of a line or two about we need to reject the, I, th- I don't even remember what the pipeline was called. It was a Kinder Morgan pipeline. And, so he said the line in the speech a few months later, Hillary Clinton follows suit, says that she's opposed to the pipeline. And I think the pipeline just didn't get built as a result of that. And that's one of those moments where it's cool. You you can kind of trace your own impact on stuff, but that's that stuff is pretty rare, I, I find. Yeah. So I was probably, I was trying to ask you about de Blasio and how you fell in with him originally. Yeah. yeah. I I was in college. I was in, I went to Fordham in New York. I had a loose sense that I wanted to work in politics, mostly informed by the West Wing. That was the extent of my interest in the profession. I had heard about this guy who was the public advocate. I think I was just sending out my resume to like a million places. And ultimately, it was between them and The Daily Show, who both were interested in me. I still don't really get why <laughs> why I went the way that I did. But I think I just I had this sense that I really wanted to be like in the fight and learn how to do press and learn how to talk to reporters and all of that stuff. I wanted to be an operative. And so I think that was what I saw as, as appealing about working for, for Bill de Blasio. And I, I did learn a lot, you know, what kind of things did you learn? I learned how politics works. Like, I think, I think just, you know, so much of when you're, when you're young, you know, when, when your entire frame of reference is like those movies and those shows and the George Stephanopoulos book, it gives you a pretty rosy view of what politics is like. People say this all the time, but like Veep is the closest thing in my experience to what politics is actually like, which isn't to say that's what Bill de Blasio's office was like. It was actually a fairly functional office on the on the spectrum from my experience. A lot of that had to do with like, he had an exceptional chief of staff named Emma, who I think is working at Columbia now. She was like an incredible mentor. She taught me a lot. And yeah, I got to learn from an incredible from de Blasio's press secretary, a guy named Wiley. And so I just, I think I just had incredible mentors and, and they just kind of taught me the ropes and ran the gamut stuff from, you know, I, I always remember, I, I tell the story a lot, but, but Emma once, and when I was like 19 years old, I turned in something to her, some like list of local media outlets across the city. And I think I just kind of half-assed it cause I wasn't that interested in it. She went to me and she said, I feel like, you know, this is B minus work and you gave it to me anyway. You're not going to succeed in politics if you do that. And I remember really taking that to heart. Some of it had to do with life lessons. Other stuff was just the nuts and bolts of what is a press release? What's that? What's the difference between that and a press advisory? You know, so just kind of the basics that I needed to to sort of move forward in the profession that I'd chosen. How did it come to be that it was comms communications that you were doing there or did you pick it or 
was that what they had for a job? That was what they had. They were hiring for like a comms intern, which then turned into a comms fellowship because I seemed competent. I seemed interested and I stuck around mostly, which is as I've learned how advancement happens in politics, but mostly just sticking around. Um, and and so, yeah, I, I, I was always interested in comms because I sort of sensed it was one of the like the paths to the kingdom. When you're like a field staffer, your experience of a campaign is pretty different than being like a communications associate or a communication, like even deputy press secretary or whatever, which isn't to say it's worse, right? It's just, it's just like what I knew about myself was sort of what I was interested in. And I was always interested in crafting arguments. I was always interested in what the campaign was arguing or what the campaign was saying. And again, a lot of it was shallow. A lot of it was just like growing up on the West Wing and, and wanting to be these guys. And that, that was a big part of, if I'm, if I'm honest, sort of what drove me to my interest in, in communications. What's funny is I have never watched an episode of Veep or West Wing. I've stayed completely away from the political fiction, maybe to my detriment, but it just feels like, I don't know, I read the news. I watch the, the real thing happening and, and maybe I don't need the drama version of it. I did see the movie Nashville or a few things, but. I don't think I've seen that one, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think that's probably a healthy choice. I, I think, um, I also just, I mean, this has been well-documented obviously, but the, the version of politics that's represented in some of these programs and these movies and stuff is, does not closely track with what the reality of politics is. It's more drama in a shorter amount well, of time. It's I more drama. It's, yeah. It also just gives people a lot of credit. It always assumes best intentions on the part of people working in politics and stuff. And I think, I, I still believe that. I, I still think there's a lot of people who are doing this stuff for the right reason and whatever. But the longer I stick around, the longer I sort of feel like it is kind of an industry like any other industry. It's a bit of a sad thing that that you sort of learn while working in the field over over any length of time. What was your path from de Blasio to 350? You said it very briefly, but tell me about the steps and kind of what you learned in those yeah. steps. So I was finishing up school at Fordham and I, I basically decided to go out to Wisconsin to go work on a congressional campaign. This was 2012. This was the Barack Obama re-election year. The congressional challenger to Paul Ryan was hiring a communications director. I knew I hated Paul Ryan. I did not like that guy. Which challenger? This was before Randy Bryce. This was uh, Rob Zerbon was his name. Yeah, 2012. I think he ran a couple of times and then I don't actually know what Rob is up to now. I'm sure he's in Wisconsin hanging out. He was a good guy and a, a good candidate. It was wild. I went out to Kenosha, Wisconsin, lived there for four or five months, had my first like real campaign life experience, and then basically came back home to New York and then got a job at a political consulting firm called Red Horse Strategies, where I sort of got to work on a bunch of like city council campaigns and state senate campaigns and stuff like that. I mostly wrote direct mail, which was a lot of ways to come up with synonyms for like X candidate is a bold fighter for working families. Like it was just coming up with different ways to say that. Was there anything in that that made you want to have your own communications firm someday? <laughs> you know, honestly, it was not a thought of mine at the time at all. I wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't something I aspired to. No, definitely not. It was something I honestly like was bored by because it was so repetitive. You do the same stuff over and over and you, again, it's just coming up with different ways to say this person, don't try not to repeat, try not to plagiarize, but say the same exact thing about this, this other candidate. No, no discredit and, to them. And, or, or and I assume Red Horse, despite the red, was Democratic? They are. Yeah, yeah. They're really famous. I think they're a lot bigger now, too. They they, they have like offices all over the country. They're, they're doing a lot of cool stuff. They're, they're good. They're, their partners taught me a lot also. It's just kind of the nature of the business when you do this stuff. Direct mail in particular was, was something that I didn't know a lot about before that job, but you get like 50 words to get to get across something about your candidate. <laughs> there's not a lot of room for creativity there. You, you can try, but there's like there's just a certain limit. I can imagine. But it sounds like 350 was a pretty pivotal place for you. I, I had Jamie Henn 
on the show to talk? Did you, was he there? And Phil? Aronianu. Yeah. Aronianu. Yeah. Yeah. I had both of those guys on at different times. What, what was 350 like for you besides like radicalizing you or politicizing you, however you want to put it? Yeah. Well, those guys are, I mean, to start, like the, those two guys are like still good friends of mine. I'm working. I, um, yeah, I just saw Jamie like last week. Uh, going to see him. We're working on a new project to try to take the fight to the fossil fuel industry on some paid media stuff, which I'm excited about. But 350 was very cool. 350, you know, is, especially when during that period when all the, the, the founders were there and yeah, I, I, it was incredible. It was, it's a, it's a really, it was a really amazing place full of, full of people who were there for the right reasons who, you know, it was not a high ego place. I think so often in the world of politics, like people, come to campaigns and come to the work to grow their own egos, to grow their own brands or own whatever. And I genuinely found that like people who worked at 350 just genuinely wanted to, to solve the crisis of climate change. I found that to be really beautiful and motivating and inspiring. And then on a, on a nuts and bolts level, like working, I got to work closely with Bill McKibben and Bill has been one of the greatest mentors in my life. I'm not the only one, like, oh, there's a lot of people who feel this way, like Sunrise Movement would probably not exist without him. He is responsible for a lot of the activism, a lot of the public consciousness around climate change. And I think apart from that, he's one of the most gifted writers I've ever met. You, you can tell him like, hey, Bill, what do you think about getting an op-ed together on, on whatever, permitting reform and Joe Manchin's ideas on permitting reform. And you, you'll expect it in three, four days, which is pretty standard. He'll get it to you in 30 minutes. I've seen him do it. He'll just sit there and bang it out. And it's better than what a committee of top people could do if given much more time. And I think just just being exposed to that, being held to that standard to an extent, that was the thing where, where my writing really got a lot better. And I think, yeah, as I've mentioned, just that sense of politics just realizing how far we are, like it's not a couple of degrees off kilter. We're fundamentally headed towards planetary disaster unless we take drastic action. That really does have the effect of reorienting the way you think about your work, the way you think about the world, and the way you even think about your own life, right? I'm, I'm not the only one who thinks about the decisions I want to have or not have in several years. It was like having kids, whatever. It, it sort of has the effect of reorienting your whole life around this thing. It was a totally sort of groundbreaking experience. And I, I'm really proud to have worked there and to have worked alongside like some of the best people I've ever met. What are the characteristics of someone who's good at communications, political communications? I think at its core, it's about being a good writer. I think that is like, everyone thinks they're a good writer. <laughs> everyone went to college, everyone wrote papers and whatever. But I do think... It's very rare that I will read someone's writing and think it's great. And again, that's partially because of Bill, but I just very rarely read something now and think that is an amazing op-ed or that is an amazing whatever it is, press release. So I think I think skill number one is being like a really, really great writer. And I think part of that, and I think that leads me to point two, is like you don't really get there unless you're really honest with yourself about your writing and about how it can improve. You need to be interested in writing as a craft and you need to you need to be honest with yourself. I think honesty is like the second big component of what it, what it takes to succeed in comms because you'll be on the phone with a candidate. There's there's some bad story coming down the pipeline about something where they were accused of something, they they said something, but whatever it is, a good comms person will just ask the honest, uncomfortable questions. What happened? What did you say? What what was that? Like tell me the truth. And if you don't have the ability to do that, if, if you're afraid of that, if you're kind of conflict averse in your personal life, that, that shows up here and it, and it limits your ability to be a really effective communicator. So I think I would start there with, with those two things. One of the things that I've admired about good campaigns, and I'm not a connoisseur of communications, but when they make an argument, like I remember watching Obama in the primaries in 2007, and he would in his speeches, address things that the other campaigns would say and say, this is what's being said. This is what I think. And he would combat these things directly. I admired that. I remember 
Bill Clinton, who maybe is out of fashion now, but back in 92, when he was campaigning, making a case for something. You see that at all levels. Some people have the interest and the knack for participating in this public dialogue in an effective way. There's other ways of being effective. Some people just sort of return to talking points and say them over and over. It drives me crazy. Maybe that works. I much prefer that the former idea of like, we're having an argument. This campaign is an argument and we're participating in it in a way that honors the audience a little bit. Yeah. That's no, there's a, there's a lot there. And I think you're totally right about that. I, I feel the same way listening to some of these campaigns where it's just talking points and stuff. That's all absolutely right. I think, I think if you don't, as a candidate, if you're not speaking to how people feel, there's stuff in the groundwater, right? And we saw this way with Trump. If you're not able to address feel, feelings that people have, it, it, you know, ignoring them and pivoting to like the high testing stuff, it just doesn't always work. People can smell that. It, it, it doesn't feel authentic. Even Trump, for all of his manifold problems, he did conduct an argument at times. Like you watch him in the debate, Hillary says something, he takes it on in his unique way. I mean, usually untruthful, but at least he was engaged in that combat. You know? yeah. yeah. And and I think he tried to understand like where people are really at. Like, I think he understood, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, but like, I think people had a sense that the country was changing. I think people had a sense that like, they didn't know how they felt about that. And I think people also at the same time felt like, their economic situation was different. And I think he just really effectively tapped into where people are. I think effective campaigns try to do that, try to tap into where people really are. And what you're saying is it's a difference between a campaign that like wants to talk about the elephant in the room, whatever it is, whether it's crime in your city, homelessness in your city, the the changing demographics of the country, climate change, whatever it is, like whatever people are actually feeling on a day-to-day basis. Right now, I, I guess the the equivalent for this is like, stuff like critical race theory and wokeness and whatever. I think you got to address what, what people are actually feeling. Um, and if you don't, it just feels like a talking points campaign. And I don't think that works. Although I, I'm always reminded when I say stuff like this of something that Allie Mortel, who I think you, you had on your show, she said to me once when we were working together last year, she was saying that if she watches a 30 second ad and she loves it, she knows it's going to suck. She knows it's not going to test well. She knows it's not going to persuade people. It's not uh, well. If it's aimed at her, it may not be aimed at the average person. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I try to I try to hold both of those ideas in my head at the same time, because I think so often people's critiques of campaigns boil down to they should they should be trying to talk more to me personally as as a voter. Right. That's so often what 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 people end up saying. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's just important to convey a sense of authenticity and to to really speak to how people are feeling. And I think there's any number of like really effective campaigns that did that pretty recently, including like John Fetterman's. I have in my head this notion that there is sort of immoral or unethical communications that can be effective. And then there are communications that can be effective that are grounded in reality and willing to grapple with it. And so like if I looked at the various spokesman for Trump when he was in the presidency. You could see like that kind of unethical communications on a daily basis where it was like bullshit spin, totally unconnected to what the boss had done or what the reality was in the world. Do you ever face that challenge in your work of having to, I'm going to assume the best of you, right? To move people from like some kind of spin to something that's more grounded? Or do you think that's like mostly right now a problem of the other side? Or how do you think about that? I think it's more a problem on the other side. I think the other side is way more often willing to do, say, things that are unethical in order to wield and to hold power. And I think they've been pretty successful at it. I don't think we're, our side is fully immune to it. I'll, I'll, like in my work, I don't see it come up a whole lot. I, I, I don't feel like I'm asked to argue things that aren't true. But part of that self-selecting, like I choose clients that I that I believe in and that I don't worry about that kind of stuff with. I'm sure some of like whatever, like Joe Manchin's press people probably feel this way. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff where you have to just sort of make 
either dishonest arguments or disingenuous arguments or whatever it is in order to advance the greater cause or what you see as the greater cause. I, I feel like there's there's little times that we, we have to do this as progressives. There are things that we have not quite figured out, I would say, as a, as a movement. Things like defund the police, for example. I don't think we've like figured out how to talk about like really thorny stuff. Some of that is just because the Democratic Party is like obviously just a much bigger coalition of different interests. And the Republican Party is like much more homogenous in terms of who it's leadership is, but also its actual rank and file membership and what its, what, what its voters look like. There is something of a consensus among a certain kind of progressive critic of the left on the general woke f- issues that there's something not quite right going on in the movement around being too absolute about opinions. It's hard to actually fully characterize, I think, but there's something where, you know, sometimes we go down certain paths too far and want to require the whole country to follow us. It's both like kind of not a great fit for reality sometimes, but also not a politically effective place because it's out of step with the majority of people. You have a long history in the progressive side of the Democratic Party. And how do you think about that complication? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a problem. I think uh, a lot of the ways that this kind of critique gets made, I think in order to have the conversation about how we talk about racial justice, I think it needs to be clear to everyone involved that you actually care about racial justice. That is like a good starting point for one example. I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about how to talk about issues of racial justice, specifically police violence. I think there's a conversation to be had about the racist history of policing and its origins in, in our nation. Like that's, it's, it's a damning story. It's not a pretty thing. But that's really different from a tactical conversation about what, what we should do in campaigns in order to win elections. And I, I just think there's like a, a bit of a natural tension there. And I feel like some of the, the ways that I've seen this conversation play out that's pretty toxic is that I see some of the people making critiques of people, you know, like when Cori Bush is going out there and talking about defunding the police, like it's a serious thing. She knows she's like been on the front lines of this fight. She was there when people were tear, tear gassed. She was she was a nurse. Like I, 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 I know that she cares about this stuff deeply. It's deeply personal to her. And so I think when when like so-called like like the critics that you're pointing out who who like want to critique this stuff there's no like generosity there it's just like activists were morons for uniting around this phrase back then and and now and we're all we're all fucked as, as a result that's sort of like the line of thinking that it goes and that's just it's not very generous it's not clear if, if you're arguing that that you actually care about the problem at all but the thing is like only the people on twitter talk that way any practitioner that i've had real conversations with about this, like feel the way that I do. And I think feel the way that you, you do about it, where it's like, there's, there has to be some sort of middle ground here and there has to be some way to have a conversation. There needs to be ways that we have tactical conversations about how to advance a shared goal as a movement. But I think first it needs to be clear to everyone that we share those goals and then, and then we move into the tactics. And if we still disagree that that's okay too. There's a second order thing going on here, which is that I think people conflate the role of activists with, with, the work of campaigners, right? Like there's one set of people whose job is to win elections. There's another set of people whose job is to shift public consciousness and understanding around stuff. And those two things are going to be at odds sometimes. And that's okay too. So there's the tension within the breadth of the coalition that elects Democrats, which you're sort of talking about. There's also that the, the bigger divide between the progressive side and the conservative side and the MAGA world, right? And we are all citizens of the same country. A lot of people that vote for Republicans are people that you wouldn't mind as neighbors. They're nice people. They make lunches for their kids and love each other and they're our neighbors. And it's I think it's challenging in our politics to figure out how to communicate to to American citizens and 
other people living here over this divide that has been so sharpened of late. How do you think about that? I'm probably like a reductionist on this stuff. I just really believe in like the work of Ezra Klein on all this stuff, the way that he he frames polarization, like its causes, but also the, the effects of that. What we have now is a is a country where people are legitimately not able to have conversations across any sort of difference. My understanding is that wasn't always true. I have memories in college of and, and even working at 350. When I, I I remember when I was working at 350, I sat on a plane next to a guy who worked for the oil industry or something. And we had a conversation about climate change. We obviously didn't see it the same way, but still a conversation. I, I just don't know that that kind of thing even happens that much anymore. It does, but it but it's certainly harder. Families are split by this and people can't talk about issues over Thanksgiving or, or you know, yeah, it's gotten worse. Yeah. And it's, it's hard and it's not, and it's not, I don't think there's an easy problem to it because, because again, if you're, if, if, if one side of, if you're, you know, like if you're black and you're saying, Hey, like there's a chance I'm going to be the next hashtag because of police violence. Right. And, and someone else's response to that is, well, this whole thing is made up and well, what about rioting and burning down cities and whatever. I just like, how are those two people ever supposed to have a conversation? The gap between those two positions, the gap between those two ways of looking at the world, like, I don't know. I don't I don't know how to bridge that. Well, there's been bigger gaps in societies around the world that have been bridged over time. And one of the things I've done is try to have some people who are interested in conflict resolution and speaking across divides on the show, because it's part of what we got to fix in this country. It's hard when you're trying to win the campaign. The political battlefield is a healthy way in a lot of regards to settle differences. It's a lot more healthy than hanging people or something. Um, yeah, for now. Yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> well, I just I, I I don't know that I don't know that I would rule out something like a civil war in our lifetimes. You know, like I don't that doesn't strike me as no. Crazy. But it would be a it would be a far worse. All my point is it would be a far sure. far worse way of settling differences. We tried that, for sure. and it, it resulted in a lot of dead people. Yeah, so. no, I agree, and I think and and some something that I think about a lot. I mean, the the answer to my question, and this is this is what I say. This is often like my my actual answer to the question of how do you have those conversations i think conflict resolution on a national scale is probably needed i worked for a candidate named becca ballant in vermont she's now a congresswoman she's now vermont's congresswoman when i started working for her she was in the single digits in the polls she was far behind the incumbent lieutenant governor she told me this story when we had one of our first meetings she was she said that when she moved to vermont she had this neighbor who was a little judgmental of, of Becca being gay and having a wife. And so on her like first week or whatever, she would, she would get to know him. She'd, she'd get to talk to him. And I think gradually he sort of came to understand that like this idea that he had of her lifestyle, of her, of her habits, of whatever, whatever it was that you think about gay people, whatever it is, that that was a little bit you know, fictionalized. It was, it, it would just, it just didn't track with his experience of the person because he had like his own experience. Now it's not just the talking points. It's not just the stuff you hear from the right wing media or anything else. He has his own experience of Becca now. And that's a hard thing to argue against, right? It's just like, you got to have your own personal experience of people. And, and so I, I know that, that Becca left a real impression on him to the point where he then put like a, a flag on, on his lawn at, at some point. Right. And she, she likes to tell this story as a, as an example of how change is possible of how we can break through polarization. I think it's rare for sure, but that gives me hope. I mean, that story's moving to me, that little capsule. And it isn't that rare when people take the time to engage in a human way and you can find ways to not Fox news, each other, not just return to tropes that suck. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's right. You're probably right. I'm probably a little, a little too cynical about it. At this I point, mean, but... unfortunately we have a lot of forces that are pushing people to be more antagonistic to each other at the same time. It's a mix. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that's definitely the, the, the incentive here, right? Like media incentivizes conflict. The easiest way to get a candidate into the news is to just that that's how this stuff works. Um, and so I think I think that's a true thing. But but you're right. I mean, it's it, it is something that can happen. It's something that that does happen every single day. It's, it's a little unseen. It's a little unsung. And it's maybe not the trend, but it is it is still possible. And that's probably one, one of the best hopes that we have. Do you ever have to make decisions 
about communications where you think there's a path that can move this my candidate's way, but it's not really good for the country because it exacerbates divides or because it rubs salt in wounds or whatever? I do struggle with this sometimes. It's a version of sort of what you're saying. Like, I think there are times when I worry that I'm helping do do the work of dragging the rest of the country down a rabbit hole that maybe they're not ready for, right? It's hard not to have a race to the bottom. Yeah. And I think we, we're right in saying that, like, it's very different, like, racing to whatever, Tucker Carlson, far right, like, white nationalist talking points, like, requiring that, January 6th, denialism, whatever, whatever crazy shit is on Fox these days, re- requiring that of your candidates is different from requiring, like, basic recognition of climate science or whatever, whatever it is that our equivalent of that is like, those are, those things are not symmetrical, but, but I still think the truth of that is that there's a lot of those things that are, that are true on the merits that a lot of the country is just not quite there yet. Something that I think about a lot is like among the pundit sort of talking headset, I think the, like the conversations around immigrant rights and like racial justice have kind of taken a step back over the past few years. I think in a lot of ways that the conversation on racial justice has moved forward. Like I think country as a whole, like I see a lot of my, my, you know, my, my fiance is white. I see a lot of her non-political family members, like reading stuff, rereading books about racial justice and what they can do to help. And, you know, I I think there is a collective consciousness around it that's changing. That said, I think it's become vogue to think that like talking about this stuff is, is isolating and alienating and candidates shouldn't do it. There's a similar sense around immigrant rights stuff, right? There was the abolish ICE thing. I don't think that was the people actually leading the the immigrant rights movement. But I think the conversations around these things have become a little little stilted. Well, and the other side has become very good at weaponizing almost anything in trying to run that culture war playbook. I don't like it. Tell me about the Bernie experience for you. Working on a presidential campaign is unlike anything else in politics. It's incredible. You learn you learn a ton. You meet a ton of interesting, well-intentioned people, really smart people from all walks of life. And it's just very cool. It's an experience that's unlike any other that I've had where it's just you're all part of this thing. It becomes your whole life for a while. It's like a summer camp for adults or something in a great way. You just you kind of bond with everyone. You go through the ringer. You're in the trenches together. It's a cool thing. I don't think especially you know, given the backdrop of American society where you have like social institutions falling, declining union membership, whatever. I think for a lot of people in this niche sort of age group or niche sort of section of the world, it's like a, it's a nice way to feel connected to other people and part of this broader mission. That was very powerful for me. It was, it was really amazing. And, and just working at that level was, was really cool. I remember thinking about this at the time that the guy who had the job before me, being the New Hampshire comms director for the winning New Hampshire Democratic candidate was like, I became like the spokesperson for the NSC or something. It was, it was just like a very cool thing to realize like, oh, this is kind of one of, one of the heights of the profession. And it was a cool experience to be a part of. I think everyone interested in politics should try to work on a presidential campaign at some point. Did losing that campaign cost you faith in the system or did you think it sorted out in a reasonable way? Or how did you think about what ultimately happened in 2016? Yeah, I I had a rough year in 2016. I mean, I had a great year in some ways, but in 2016, I didn't think Bernie was going to win. I didn't, I didn't have any idea that, I mean, a lot of people didn't think that, right? I don't think he thought he was going to win in 2016. I saw the campaign as a way to move Hillary Clinton to the left on climate policy. Like I sort of figured she'd be the nominee. Like we could use Bernie to push her to the left a little bit. And we did that. I think that was great. But something about, I remember, I, so I went back to my job at 350 after the the Bernie campaign, super burned out. I had been exhausted. I'd never worked that hard in my life. Super burned out. And I remember vividly seeing the Trump taco bowl tweet Do you remember this one? It was Donald Trump at the sitting at like the roof of Trump tower or whatever with a giant taco bowl in front of him. And I, I remember a picture. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a taco bowl him doing a thumbs up and being like Trump tower makes the best taco bowls. I love Mexicans exclamation mark was the, was the <laughs> kicker. 
And I, I remember thinking like, oh my God, I cannot do six months of this. I cannot be here for six months. So I, I'm actually I'm actually like a pretty avid world traveler. That tweet basically made me decide that I didn't want to be there the rest of that year. I took five months off, which was something I was always trying to do anyway. I always watched all these movies about backpacking and I, I knew I wanted to like actually experience the world and not just be one of these people that just exists in one place for forever. I think that's a healthy thing if you have the means to do it. And so I took I took five months, went to go travel, like depleted my savings account, but went to go travel around the world, went to 10 different countries, went to Antarctica, to, went hiking in Nepal, living out of one like day pack for three weeks. And it was amazing. It was it was one of those things that, you know, makes you makes you feel like the world is amazing and the world is possible. And I was in Indonesia the night of the 2016 election. I met this like this cool British girl. We were going to go surfing together. You know, she, she had the accent and everything. It was going to be, it was going to be a great day. I told her just like, just give me a second. I'm just going to go check on this election thing that's going on back home. And then like 16 hours later, I had not moved just like shaking, thinking about what this meant for climate policy. Right. Cause you got to remember for me, I was like the differences between Bernie and Hillary on climate policy. And then to think about Donald Trump just happened. Like I'm in a country that's probably going to go underwater as a result of what just happened. So I think that is the thing I haven't really recovered from is the sense that Barack Obama always used to say that history points towards justice, right? That like the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. I, I still probably think that's true on balance, but I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think we try to push it there. Some things are moving that way because of the efforts of people, good hearted people. But humanity goes into dark ages and goes backwards very far sometimes. And there's no rule that says we can't obliterate each other or something short of that's just horrible, like the Civil War you mentioned. Like, it's our job to push it that direction. And hopefully sure. we can. Yeah. And, and I do think, like, I have this some kind of faith that there's more people, maybe considerably more people that can be persuaded to go the right way. If you do a good job at jobs like you have, you know, <laughs> but I think that's uh, right. I mean, I, cause what you're saying, what you're sort of saying is like that, that's the difference between saying the, the moral, the arc of the moral universe is long, but events for justice and saying something like most people are fundamentally good at, at their core. And I think I still believe that. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I do think most people are, however, in a certain circumstance, you can have a vast group of people doing very horrible things. Yeah. Uh, yep. And we've seen that over and over. We don't want to let it get there. And I, that's frankly what is so worrisome about kind of the Trump DeSantis MAGA movement is that it has the potential to really create widespread harm around the world and here. It does. Yeah. No, it really does. And, and and the DeSantis version of it in particular scares me a lot because I think he's better at it. You know, like the the well, time the will just, tell. Yeah. The, yeah. The just the genius of like the combining the teacher pay stuff with culture war, you know, like I, I really that does make me scared. Yeah. I mean, politically, I hope he lands on a political mine. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, I want to ask you one question about that trip. Do you come back changed the trip abroad? Yeah, definitely changed. I think to your point, my faith in the world shattered a little bit. Um, just kind of in like a, I, I don't know what it, I still am not totally sure what it is. Is it a, my, I can't believe my country is capable of this. Is it, is it, I, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the feeling is. Because again, I, I do tend to see people as good and I do tend to under, I also understand like, you know, frankly, how genocides happen. I think I was just a little shattered because until then it, it felt like things were headed in the right direction. And that was always the narrative of the Obama years too. So I, I was changed. And then also the other way that I was changed and the reason I, I tell when, whenever I talk to like young people, you know, like just starting their careers in politics and stuff, I try to tell them to take time off when they can. Because I think Washington and New York, this work has has an, has a way of making itself feel like it's the center of the world, where it's just like Hollywood loves to do movies and TV shows about Hollywood. And I think we love doing that stuff too. Like Washington loves to talk about itself. 
And I think there's something really powerful about being nobody in Himalayan India, just having to be subject to someone's kindness who you're never going to see again. It, it, is, it is just, it has this effect of profoundly altering your worldview. It had the effect of restoring my faith in people and my belief that the world is full of good people while also just being kind of profoundly dispiriting about sort of where our politics are and where our politics are, are maybe headed. What did you learn from Bernie Sanders about communications? He's one of the most gifted communicators in American politics, obviously. He does the thing that you're talking about. He does the thing where he tries to meet people where they are. He tries to make a real argument. He really knows like where, where someone is. It's not like, how do, how do you have a conversation about Medicare for all? You have a conversation about the moral thing that's at stake. Like, do you really think it's okay that these insurance companies are making billions and billions of dollars? Well, you, you can't send your kid to the, to the eye doctor. That's not right. Like that's a, that's a way of framing it that like anyone can get behind. It's, it has nothing to do with, I mean, it has something to do like all this other stuff is there. The second, third order stuff around costs and cost savings and all the, all that stuff is there. But he has a way of making stuff simple and accessible that I think is unrivaled in American politics and really, really, really important because I think too often, especially on, on our side, like we get we get a little too eggheaded in policy design and we get a little too eggheaded in how we talk about stuff. And Bernie and honestly, Trump are pretty good reminders that like communication happens. What he taught me more than anything is that communication happens on like an emotional level that what you're trying to do when you communicate in politics is elicit an emotional response, not an intellectual response. And he is incredibly good at that. If I understand correctly, you started a firm called Left Flank Strategies. Yeah. How did that come to be? And who is in it with you? So after I got back from my trip, I, you know, and I, I basically bounced around different orgs. I, I worked at the, the ACLU for a while. I worked on the Hill for Keith Ellison. None of those things were exactly right. Capitol Hill felt a little constricting and the advocacy world had its own problems. And so I just decided that what I wanted to do was do my own thing and take on projects that I really cared about and believe in and not really be tied to like one organization and it's all of the internal history and all the whatever that comes with that. Yeah. So, so actually I started consulting back in late 2018 with Mike Casca, we we sh we started a shop called Movement Communications. It was just he and I, and we worked together for a while until he decided one day he wanted to he wanted to work on the Senate, working for for Senator Sanders for a whole lot of reasons. The consulting life is not always easy. You got to you got to be out there looking for clients. You got to be wrestling up work, and and you kind of have to want that a little bit, or at least be okay with it. And that was always hard. And so basically at the same time that he was sort of like transitioning to a, like a different relationship with his work, I uh, started talking to a couple other folks, Anna Barr, who's a fellow Bernie person from California. She ran the brilliant California communications operation that delivered the Golden State to the senator in 2020. And Bill Needhart, who was who became Mayor Bill de Blasio's press secretary and before that worked on the Bernie 2020 campaign as well. And so, so the three of us were sort of all looking to do something similar. And so we just decided to go in on left flank together and sort of build like a new shop that exists to serve progressive clients, progressive candidates, and work for causes and organizations that we care about. So projects like Mijente and the Democracy Collaborative, and yeah, electoral clients. But right now we're working for Brandon Johnson's mayoral campaign in Chicago, which is really exciting. We're, we're picking up a lot of steam and it's going to be an interesting race. It's fun. It's a new thing. It's it's um, building something is different from doing the work of communications. There's days I wish I th could think less about QuickBooks and stuff like that and think less about money. But that's kind of the nature of the beast. Like if, if you're on your own and starting your own shop, your thinking sort of ends up shifting a little bit. This was not something I wanted to do, but I do feel like it ended up being the best way to sort of contribute to the movement in the way that I felt like I could. How's it doing as a business? We're doing well. It's January of an off year in the in the electoral cycle, which is uh, which is always which is always a bit of a lean time across across the industry. There's a bunch of new projects. That are, that are coming up and in the pipeline and stuff we've already taken on. 
we've got a staffer uh, actually on the ground for us in Chicago, helping helping run the the Chicago race. So the plan is to keep growing. The plan is to keep sort of expanding and, and hopefully become more of a thing. Like, you know, part of the reason we started this is because we all thought about working for like bigger firms. And we just, if you're a PR person at a certain point in your career, you you think about going to work for one, one of these firms. And then you realize that like you're told, you ask around and you're told that like a lot of your work is you're going to be working for Walmart. You're going to be doing press releases for whatever, some corporate cause that you don't give a shit about. And there might be a time when I want that out of my life and out of my work. And I mean that with no shade. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just not what I want right now. Like, I think some of the stuff that these firms do, like taking on TransCanada as a client, like, I think that is truly reprehensible and should stop. And um, and what Walmart probably fits into one of that as well. Probably shouldn't take on evil corporations that are exacerbating the problems in our world and shouldn't carry their water for them. So I think it was part moral objection and also just part professionally, I wasn't interested in doing that. And so I think out of those two things came the desire to start my own thing. What does the engagement with a client with your firm look like? What ends up actually happening? It really depends. Our services kind of run the gamut. We we can, you know, if there's like a, we've been brought in when there's a, there's a crisis that needs handling, right? A firing or whatever, and they, they need help sort of thinking through how to how to talk about it publicly. The most common way to engage with us is through like an ongoing monthly retainer. So a campaign will just pay us to sort of be either advisors or actually am implementing the work like for right now in, in Chicago, we're doing a lot of the like nuts and bolts communications work. So they'll pay us a monthly retainer and we were basically serving as like their communications team, their point of contact with the media, we're rewriting policy platforms, whatever needs doing. Think of think of us as like an extension of your communications team. And then other times we just provide like sort of high level strategic advice. If your goal is to be this organization in two years, here are things you need to do. Here are podcasts you need to go on. Here are like media appearances you need to get. And here's how you can get them. It's not a one size fits all thing. It really starts with understanding who you are, what your goals are, um, and and how we can help you get there. And, and some of those things are simple. Like if you're a candidate, your goal is to be elected. There's very discreet ways that we can plug into that. If it's more organizational, if it's more reputational, that's where we really try to fit in by best understanding sort of what, what, what the goals are. Who would you like to work for that you don't yet work for? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for this cycle, we're really excited about Katie Porter's race in California. That would be really cool. We obviously think she's an incredible progressive leader. I think her race is going to be one of the highlights in what's going to be an otherwise maybe kind of depressing year in terms of just the Senate math. I mean, not, not, I actually think Joe Biden will do quite well, but I, but just like the, the Senate map is hard. But the honest answer to that question, if you ask anyone who has my political persuasion and the honest answer to that question is I hope AOC runs for president and I hope I get to work on that campaign. What do you think the chances are of that? I don't know. I believe in her a lot. I think she's she's an incredible leader and I think she's a really gifted communicator. I do feel like some of the things that we were talking about, some of the some of the challenges around dragging the rest of the country down a hole, whatever, I think those would be there, which I see as exciting. As I see as a communications practitioner, I think that could be really exciting to work on a campaign where you sort of explain to people why some of these policies are necessary. I do get the sense that like people of a certain age that, that she just like kind of rubs people the wrong way. And I'm not sure I fully understand it, but just like hearing stuff from extended family and whatever, even acquaintances, whatever. If you're like a 50 something year old white woman or whatever, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you're totally sold on the AOC thing. I'm not totally sure I understand that. Well, it's a pretty big jump. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> to president. I mean, you know, Buttigieg yeah. is trying to make that jump and he's a pretty, Pretty adept. Well, this is, I mean, I mean, this is like in the future, right? I don't yeah. mean, I don't mean right now. You don't mean, I mean like, like against Biden in a no, near term? No, no, definitely not. No, no, no. Undermine the current incumbent Democrat sort of no, way. No, I don't, I don't really think anyone should. I, I, I don't know if, I don't know if that makes me controversial on the left, but I don't, but I don't actually think that's like a. Yeah, I, I mean, Biden's pretty interesting in the climate space in that he adopted a lot of Green New Deal type stuff and it's, it's actually been enacted. Absolutely the reason I feel that way. Um, it doesn't 
yeah, I, I, if you'd asked me a year ago if you if I thought that's what was going to happen, like definitely wouldn't have said that. But yeah. he's been. It's, he's I been, mean, it's an interesting thing about politics because it probably was, you know, two campaigns by Sanders, as well as Biden's willingness to form a joint committee on policy before the convention to try to heal the party. Probably learning from what happened four years before and. And then some kind of willingness to keep negotiating and negotiating in, in with the Congress and something got. Yeah. And, and honestly, this is what's kind of, this kind is of what's a lesson kind of there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's humbling. Like for me, for me, like the lesson from 2022 is we can all think about this stuff all day long and like, we don't, we can still get surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The best, the best, and the best midterm incumbent per performance by a sitting president in what decades? That is not something any of us would have seen coming. I was certainly far more pessimistic than same. What happened? Same, absolutely. And I'm usually incredibly good at these at figuring out what's <laughs> going to happen, but I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, tell me what stock to put money in, then. No, no. In, in seriousness, I feel like the you know, the, the, the narrative was so set around the 2022 midterms and it's, it's kind of changed my view of, of Biden as well, where I just, I've, I've been saying this to people a lot, but I just, he sort of had the tone, right? A lot of people were saying he should do this. He should do that. He should talk about abortion less. He should talk about this other thing less. He shouldn't talk about voting rights. And that was all wrong. He, he played a pretty pivotal role here in, in sort of what the party prioritized, what the committees prioritized and, he didn't have the best set of cards and he seems to have played them pretty well. I mean, it's some pretty good advisors, but he has also, maybe he has some knowledge from a lot of years in Delaware and, and in Congress actually about politics. Right. Someone else on his team actually said this to me, but that like his political superpower is just kind of understanding where the median voter is not listening to any of this other stuff, like the noise, whatever. I certainly have my share of things that I feel like he should say differently or should do differently. I'm learning to be more humble about that stuff because, again, when you're 25 and you work on the Bernie Sanders campaign and you, you have this incredible experience and opportunity to change the country and you see all these things that are legitimately broken with the way politics works, like you become a little sure of yourself. You become sure that you have the answers for how to fix everything and how to win elections. And I think we could all benefit from just being a little bit more humble, a little bit more willing to acknowledge that maybe we don't know everything and and maybe someone like Joe Biden who's been doing this for a really really long time does does have gifts. Do you think that acquired humility has helped you be a better communications consultant or maybe is it work the other way because sometimes when you're sure of yourself it's easier to craft a document or a position or talking points or whatever. I think it's helpful in that it helps you see the truth. What's most convincing in communications, in my experience, is something that's the closest to the truth. Well, whether it's spin, whether it's a policy solution, whatever it is, like if it isn't the truth, people can sort of smell that from a mile away. If you're saying the problem is crime and your solution does not feel like an actual solution, that doesn't feel like the truth to people. I think humility does help you with that. I feel like I would be better served by more certitude sometimes, and especially... You know, I think a big part of the way the business works is self-promotion stuff. That's one of those things where I, I feel like I, you know, I'm continuing to learn it and, and it's not a, nus a muscle that comes supernaturally. But when it comes to like, when, when it comes to humility versus certitude, I think as a communications person, part of it is that there's things you can't control. Sometimes you have to, you have to argue positions. Sometimes you have to make arguments like your handed decision sometimes this is the position of the campaign go go make a case for why it's right and so you you do kind of have to like check your own feelings and your own certitudes at the door a little bit and i think humility helps you do that for sure what should i have asked you that i haven't it's pretty comprehensive it's pretty compendious we covered a lot of ground here i think so too i thought it was a good conversation it's good to get to know you a little bit is there anything else you want to say no, thanks for having me on. This was a this was a real pleasure, and um, yeah, really really excited to to get to talk to you, and and um, yeah, hope hope we can do it again. That was Karthik. He is at leftflank.com. 
This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.